0: So, this week we're going to continue on in our series, God Part One. And we've been looking at the central story of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus story. And it is found in the second book of the Bible. And we're diving into the Exodus largely because I cannot overemphasize enough how important the Exodus is as a narrative for understanding pretty much the entire Bible. You really can't understand most of the Old and New Testament without getting what goes on in the Exodus. You see, the Jewish authors of the Bible turn to the Exodus, its major narrative elements, its major themes, over and over and over again, almost as a filter for who they are, who God is, what God is doing in the world, pretty much the whole human experience. So we are going to take a few months, and we're going to unpack these central themes and movements of the Exodus with one question in mind. Simply, we're gonna ask, what does the Exodus story teach us about who this God is? But more specifically, we're gonna try to answer that question with one of the most time-tested and true cliches that exists. That if you want to really get to know who someone is, you start by looking at what they do. In other words, actions just speak louder than words. So that's what we're looking at this series. We're going to try to dive into who the God of the Bible is by looking at what he does in the moment of crisis when the cards are down. So, Pastor Lori kicked us off last week with the first two chapters of our story. And she focused specifically on what we can learn about God in the moments of the Bible when he seems to be silent or absent, especially in the midst of suffering or oppression. And this week... We're going to focus on our next major element or moment of our story. And it's the moment when God tells his people his name. And as we do that, I'm going to pose two questions to you just to think about. Keep them in the back of your head. First, what does it say about who God is that he has a name that we can know at all? And second, what does the name itself teach us about who the God of the Exodus is? might be, because I believe that the name of the God that we find in the scriptures today is one of the most profound and important mysteries of the entire Bible. And I'll be honest, you may think that's an exaggeration, and it's kind of true. I have been putting a little extra weight on this idea of names for the last 10 months, because... As some of you may know, um, I welcomed my first child, my daughter Audie, to the world four weeks ago. Yeah, and there's this great thing about being a pastor, and that is that you have a microphone and you have control of slides, so you get to abuse power pretty much whenever you want. So I'm going to abuse my role here as a teacher in this church by showing off my daughter. So let me introduce you to baby Audie. Oh my goodness, <laughs> isn't she just the cutest? Uh, Try the next one. (laughs) She has no idea what she's doing. Babies don't know why they're smiling, but it's still adorable. (laughs) Next, next. Oh, come on. Come on, those eyes. Those eyes. And then the last one, I think, is a family portrait. Hank is not amused. Uh, (laughs) Hank is my dog, and he's not sure how he feels about baby Oddy yet, because for eight years, he's been the only one I've ever loved, pretty much. Sorry. Honey, I love you. Uh, But he's still trying to figure out where he fits in this whole family. So, basically, you know, I've just been thinking a lot about names lately. I've had to. And on one hand, I did just want to show her off. But on the other hand, I actually bring up Adi because, for me, it speaks a little bit to what we're going to dive into today. You see, the process of naming Adi was a lot more challenging and thought-provoking than I thought it would be, than what I anticipated. I mean, first of all, it struck me very quickly that I was responsible for determining what her friends and family would call her for the rest of her life. So if I came up with a name that sounds like a dirty word and rhymes with something silly, I'm basically gonna ruin her life. (laughs) Middle school will probably be a source of deep trauma. So I had to start thinking, does this name rhyme with things? Is there a pun that I'm not seeing here? (laughs) I mean, my name, to some extent, you can't avoid it, my name's Overstreet, and the things I heard in middle school, y'all, I've heard them all. If you want me to never smile at you again, make a joke about under-road, whatever else. (laughs) I'm over it. (laughs) But in all seriousness, you see, what I really found was I began reflecting on how many different approaches there are to naming a human being see, I think when you look at the world, all the different cultures, all the different family values, all the different views on what a name means and what it's supposed to do for a person, you start to just get lost in just how many different approaches there are. I mean, my family, my small family unit is a perfect example of this. My name is Michael. It was almost James, I ended up being Michael. And I want you to know that the year I was born, it was the most common name in America for male babies. So, I eventually shortened it to Mike. One, because I was in kindergarten and I couldn't spell Michael, but also because I just knew 500 other people who had my name. So I had to do what I could to distinguish myself. And what that really means is that my name, for the most part, never had inherent meaning for me. It was something I went by. And it was actually something that I was left to kind of develop my own value of, my own definition of, which I'm actually pretty grateful for. Now, Ricky, my wife, on the other hand, is the exact opposite approach. You see, she's named after her father, Richard. So Ricky's name, from the moment she was born, was invested with deep family meaning. Her very name is a reminder of where she comes from. It's a reminder of memories and a legacy. Two different approaches to naming. Equally valid, equally powerful, but different. And with Adi, we actually kind of went a third way. Uh, Her name actually, we came to the idea of the name through Adi Cornish, an NPR host. But she's not named after Adi Cornish. You see, we just thought the name in some ways, at the simplest level, captured some of those universal values that we both held. It captured our hope That her life would have experiences of beauty, wonder, uniqueness, and hopefully not too many English words that it rhymes with. But at the same time, we were incredibly intentional about making sure outside of that it did not have any set or concrete meaning. Because while we wanted to invest a little bit of ourselves and how we see our world into her, we wanted to leave it up to her to decide what the name Adi would mean. And I think that what this captures, most of all, these examples, is something we always have to remember when we start talking about names. And that is, you can't talk about names without also talking about the culture, the history, and the time period that they come from. Otherwise, you might just find out that the meaning is lost. You might go home and be like, what does Mike mean? And It doesn't mean anything. Or you might think that Ricky, It's just a unique way to spell a common name. In both cases, you would miss the point. Are you following me? So, I bring all this up because I think this is especially true for the Bible. Because in the ancient world, names were incredibly important. They were believed to carry with them a deep sense of meaning, direction, purpose, and history. You see, names in the ancient world were bestowed or given. They were usually passed along by a higher power or a higher authority. A parent, a king, a god would give you a name. And as bestowed title, it was believed that they were meant to say something about who the person was or who the higher authority hoped that they would one day become. In other words, it was a testament to their character, their identity, their destiny. And this is why in the Bible, take notice any time you see someone who is given a name by God or has their name changed. Because in that moment, God is saying something about who that person is or who he hopes they become. So when you give someone a name, you aren't just giving them something to go by. Like I said, it was meant to capture the person's current or hoped-for character their identity, their purpose, their destiny. So you're supposed to be able to know a lot about a person if they had the right name. So when God tells us his name in Exodus 3, in the context of the ancient world, we need to listen. Because that means that God is telling us something important about who he is. And that's what we're going to dive into today. We're going to get into Exodus 3, the moment where we find God's name for the first time in the entire Bible. But before we do, I want to briefly recap the first two chapters, our story so far. So the Exodus begins, we see God's people, the Israelites, in slavery. And they're being just brutally oppressed. They're being worked mercilessly. There's actually a moment of genocide that we read about in which the pharaoh decides that the Israelites are becoming too powerful, too big in their population, and he orders the execution of all the male babies. And we read that there is one baby who is saved, this baby named Moses, who is actually, by a twist of fate, raised and adopted into the pharaoh's own household, where he is shielded and protected, and he grows up. And He ends up living most of his adult life actually in the household of his people's oppressor. And then we read that this lovely trip to Egypt ends for Moses because he comes across an Egyptian slave driver who is beating an Israelite slave, and Moses murders him. And Moses is forced to flee into exile, where he basically lives for several decades of his life as a shepherd in this place called Midian, which is the middle of nowhere, pretty much. And we're left with one final thought at the end of chapter 2. It says that God has heard the cries of his people in their oppression, and he is going to act to save them. We don't know how yet, but we're left with that expectation kind of hanging on the wind. And chapter three starts, and we are introduced to one of the most iconic scenes in the whole Bible. See, Moses is wandering with his sheep. He's grazing, and he comes across a fascinating sight, There is a burning bush that, though it's on fire, it doesn't burn up. And from this burning bush, God calls out to Moses. And what begins is a back-and-forth conversation that will ultimately set the course for the rest of the Bible. What we find is a God who calls out to Moses and makes himself known. He says, I am holy, I am set apart, I am unique. And he tells him, I am the God of your ancestors. I am the God of Israel's story." And then comes the humdinger. He says, Moses, I have great news. And Moses is like, yes. He goes, I'm going to defeat the Pharaoh. Yes. I'm going to destroy Egypt. Yes. I'm going to send you to do it. What? (laughs) And uh, he tells Moses that he's going to use him as his final act of liberation, that Moses will be the one to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And as a disclaimer, we will be diving into Moses' character, his calling, and his interactions with God next week. So if you're following along with your Bibles, I'm not just skipping this part, but we're going to dive into it more deeply next week. But I introduce that because this week, we're actually going to look at one very specific part of this conversation that begins in Exodus 3. We find it in Exodus 3.13. You see, essentially, as you might expect, Moses is not too keen about being sent to confront the most powerful military empire in the known world by a burning shrub. So, he objects. And through these objections, it comes to the moment where he asks our major question today. We find it, we read, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then, what shall I tell them? Now, first things first, We actually need to take a second to unpack that question. Because you might be thinking, it's kind of weird because God's name was used in the question. Isn't God's name God? And you would be wrong. You see, we have come in our American English to associate the word God with God's name. However, that is not the case in Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in. The word that we see translated as God in Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim is not a name. Elohim is a title or a status. It is a way of referring to almost any generic deity in the Bible. So, for example, even the false gods of Israel's neighbors are called the Elohim of Egypt, the Elohim of Babylon, the Elohim of Assyria. And while God is a divine deity, he is an Elohim, What I would put forth is that the God of the Bible is much more than the other things referred to by this word throughout. God is an Elohim, he is a divine deity, but that is not his name. Which means that Moses isn't asking if he's speaking to a divine being. He's not saying, am I speaking to an Elohim? In fact, Moses already knows that's happening. Because what did God tell him? I am the Elohim, I am the God of your ancestors. And Moses also, I don't think, is asking if he can call him something like Bob in the course of their conversation. He's not asking him for something that, hey, can can you go by something else? No, Moses is asking a far deeper and profound question in this verse. Remember the importance of names in the ancient world. You see, when Moses says, what is your name? What he is really saying is, if you want me to go confront Pharaoh, if you want me to go and lead the Israelites, I need to know what kind of God are you. What is your character? What is your purpose? Are you a God that I can trust? Because you're sending me to do something quite radical. I need to know who you are. And the response that God gives is confusing, it's complex, it's mysterious. I believe when explored, it's actually quite beautiful. But it is something that has confounded theologians for thousands of years. We read in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am, which just cleared it all up. (laughs) This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you should call me from generation to generation. So Moses asked God to tell him who he is, to tell him his name, and God tells him, I am who I am, or just I am. And I'm sure there was part of Moses that was like, I could have... Bob would have been fine. And if you have no idea what that response means, that is okay. Because it is one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian and Jewish religion. This personal name of God, what it means. And honestly, we shouldn't be surprised by that. If we are to believe that this God is the infinite creator of the entire universe and everything that exists, then would we expect him to go by Bob? In fact, wouldn't it be an act of arrogance for me as a finite human being to believe that I can just know fully what the name of the infinite means? Shouldn't we expect mystery? Shouldn't we expect depth, complexity, the unknown? I mean, we are coming into contact with the infinite. So if you want to give you an easy, concrete answer to what the Bible's getting at here, I can't. And I don't think anyone can. What I do think we can do is peel back layers of it. I think we can approach it from different angles. I think we can almost put it together like a mosaic of just these mini shards of glass that on their own maybe point to one thing, but together give us a little bit more insight on who this God might be you okay with that? That's good, because it's about to get real dense. (laughs) So, to begin with, we're going to start with what we can learn from the fact that God provides a name for himself at all. And I believe this points to pretty three simple things. One, it tells us that this God is relational and knowable. You don't give someone a name if you don't want them to know it. That means he wants a relationship. He wants to be known. I think the second point you could point out is that this God has an identity and a character. Within the context of the ancient world, he wouldn't give them a name for himself if he did not want them to know things about him based on it. So this God is identifiable. He has attributes of his character that will come to find. And lastly, I think it teaches us that he is unique in both the fact that he has a specific name that no one else in the Bible has But also remember what I said. Names are bestowed by an authority. So if God gives himself a name, he is saying, I am uniquely capable of taking part in the highest authority. There is no one else above me that can give me my name. I am the only being that can give it to myself. So he's unique. The next part that we dive into is actually the presentation of the name itself, because it's actually really fascinating. So in the English Bible, you will see that the divine name is being used any time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If you didn't know that's why they do that, that's why. If it's a lowercase lord, it usually is a different word in Hebrew or Greek. But when it's the name of God, you're going to say capital letter Lord. Now, in Hebrew, it consists of four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We would see it written down as Y-H-W-H, but in Hebrew, that's yod heh vah Now, the exact pronunciation of this name is actually kind of lost in history. You see, it's an ancient name that traces its time back to before they were writing things down. But through the best research that we can do, we have come to our best understanding that it was pronounced as Yahweh or Yahweh. Now, to some extent... What's interesting is that actually doesn't matter because many Jewish traditions actually will not say the name Yahweh out loud. They believe it is too holy. They believe the name of God is so holy that you actually break the commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain when you utter it out loud. That's how sacred it is. So in these traditions, what they do is they refer to it as Hashem, which just means the name which I think is super cool, (laughs) like, hello, I'm the name. (laughs) So, that's how the word is kind of put together. Now, when we start to look at the name itself, we actually want to begin with this phrase, I am. What does God mean by saying that his name is I am? What does this teach us about who he is? It is hotly debated. I think at its most basic level, what this gets at, I think we can agree through most scholarship, is that it's a statement about God's unique existence and ability to create, especially in contrast to the other gods of Israel's neighbors. So basically, what it's saying is that nothing else in our universe, in the Bible, can claim that it exists by its own accord. Everything else you come across was either born, created by God, or spoken by God. So when Key comes to Moses and Moses says, what is your name? And he says, I am. He is making a deep statement that he alone was not created. That he has no higher power. That he alone has the ability to exist on his own. That he is the bedrock and beginning of all reality. To put it more simply, he says, who are you? And God says, I alone can create something from nothing, which means I alone can can make the claim that I simply am. I think that's pretty cool, if not a little heady. And I have really good news, because if that wasn't confusing enough, it only gets less exact from there. So, you see, the full name is actually, can be translated in multiple different ways. The Hebrew to English bridge, the gap between those languages makes it very hard sometimes to make the translation exact. And you'll see it pop up in any number of ways in the Bible. You'll see it sometimes as I am who I am. Other translations will say I am what I am. And then you might also see I am what I will be or I will cause to be what I will cause to be. So now you guys all, you got it now, right? You can end the sermon. And I can't tell you which of these is like 100% most correct. In fact, I don't think that's the right question at all. I think each of them provides a different window into who this infinite God is. I think we need all of them. First, I just want to walk, well, want to walk through some t- interpretations. And I want to lay out some of the arguments for what these names might point to. And we're going to see if all together we start to come to an idea of who this is. So first, a lot of people would point out the name is meant to further God's statement of his own unique ability to create, sustain, and show deep care for life. So what does it say? I will cause to be what I will cause to be. Basically what they argue is that God associates his very name with the fact that he chooses to create and sustain life. And what these theologians would point to is that God so deeply identifies with life itself that when you ask him who he is, it's almost inseparable from his desire to see life go on. So I will cause to be what I will cause to be. The name of God affirms his commitment to all life. Another interpretation is that the name is actually meant to point to God's perfect and reliable character. I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. It's this idea that God tells Moses in this moment of deep crisis, you can trust who I am because I simply am who I say I am. And what he basically gets at here is that in this moment where Moses says, you're about to send me to do the impossible, God is trying to assure Moses that he is totally and perfectly reliable in both doing what he says he's going to do and being who he says he is. He says, trust me. I am a God that is trustworthy beyond circumstance. I am a God who's reliable. A third interpretation actually fits well within the focus of our series. What they would argue is it's actually more of a way of telling Moses that Moses can know who he is by what he does. They would argue it's better translated almost as, I am and always be who I say I am through what I do. And in this view, in this interpretation, the name of God is God's way of telling Moses, just look at who I am, observe my actions, observe what I'm about to do, and you're going to see who I am. In this argument, what they would say is that the name reminds us that his perfect character produces his actions perfectly. So, if God pursues justice in our world, it is because within God is perfect justice. If God shows love in our world, it is because within God is perfect love, and the vice versa is true. If we see God pouring love into the world, we can know that he is loving. Are you following me on that one? So it's this way of God basically trying to teach us that we can find out who he is by watching his actions within his creation. And I think all of these are valid interpretations that point to a little piece of that larger mosaic. I think they all teach us something a little bit more about who this infinite God is but there's actually one interpretation that I came across years ago that has stuck with me the most. It's one I want to spend the end of our time exploring, and it's one that has profoundly impacted me in terms of who I think God is and how I see my very life. You see, it has to do with God's connection to breath and life. The rabbinical sources, they looked at these four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vod, He, and they acknowledged or they pointed out that they actually act as vowels in the Hebrew language. More than that, as vowels, they acted as the sound of breathing in the Hebrew language and tradition. So they, they took this idea that God's name is Yod, He, vav. Hey, and then they began to dive into the Bible, and they found over and over again an association with God's divine breath and life. For example, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we see Adam, the first human being, being brought to life. And what happens? He's made from the dirt, and then what? God's breath is breathed into that dirt, and it becomes a living thing. And throughout the Bible, the authors took this idea and they ran with it. When God's breath entered a person, they came to life. When God's breath left a person, they died. God's breath was the thing that animated life. And from this, these rabbis, these theologians, they began to believe that the reason the name is unpronounceable is that it is not a word at all. It is the very sound of breathing. Yo, hey, Va. the name of God, the very sound of life. Is it the very sound of breath? In their mind, God and life were so intertwined that he chose for us to know him by the sound of life. That we would know his presence through the sound of breathing. And this understanding of God's name just lit up the way I see God in so many ways. I mean, just let's think of some of the implications. This understanding of God's name shakes up and transforms how I view my very life and my existence. It is God's way of reminding me that my life and existence is a divine gift, And if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say that over and over again, and I'm sorry, I'm going to hammer this point, because our life is a gift, and that point is central to the biblical worldview. You can't understand what the Bible says about being a human being if you don't understand that all of this is a gift. So God, what he teaches me is that every time I breathe, whose name is it? Is it my own? Do I breathe Mike, Mike, Mike? Or do I breathe the name of the one who gifted me life? Yo, hey, fa, hey. My breath is not my own according to the name of God. I just think that's beautiful. This view of God's name also lights up those moments of silence and suffering that we talked about last week. I think we all have those moments of deep fear and pain and we cry out, God, where are you? What would it mean if the very breath that let you cry that out was actually saying, yo, hey, va, hey, that in the moment you said, God, I can't find you, God said, I am here. I mean, the name of God says that in those moments of the dark night in the soul, I only have to look as far as my breath to find the God of the exodus. And this view of God, man, what it really did was it upended radically how I engage with other people. You see, I think we all have people in this world that sit across from us, and I'll I'll just be honest about myself, we kind of hate them. We start seeing them as enemies. We start seeing them as the other. What would it do if for every word they spoke, you heard yo? Va, hey, the name of the God who made you. Would that change how you treat them? Would that change how you use your breath as you address them? I think it would, because it reminds me that God cares so fully for all life that he would identify his very name with his desire to care for it. And finally, this idea of God's name, his breath, has transformed the sense of awe and wonder I have for every stupid minute of this bizarre existence. I mean, it's so easy to take this existence for granted, to miss out on the beauty of this life. But I think that's a lot harder to do when in every moment of it, I see the overflowing presence of a God with a name, that in every moment of my stupid little life, I can hear God speak, Yo. Hey, va. Hey. That changes the small moments of my life into something much, much better. I mean, this utterly, utterly, utterly speaks to my season of life right now. When Adi cried for the first time, was it an obnoxious, shrill, horrible squeal? Or was it my daughter saying the name of God for the first time. When I hear her cry, is this another opportunity to hear God's name spoken to me? To find the infinite, beautiful, perfect God residing in this little baby. Yo, hey, va, hey. Wouldn't that change how you might treat those moments? The name teaches me that there is not a moment of this life that is not overflowing with divine presence in its beauty, its creativity, its glory, its power, its an offering of peace, its love and grace. And I just miss that when my life becomes a series of meaningless breaths that I'm trying to breathe as I race to the grave there is not a stale moment of this world when I seek to find the God of breath in it. I think that gives me a true sense of awe and wonder. I mean, I don't know about y'all, I just think that's profound. I think that changed everything for me. I mean, I think that's a name that I can give myself to. And I want to close by asking some questions to reflect on in this next song. Namely, where do you need to find and dwell in the name of Yahweh, the name of God? Maybe you need to start where Moses started, with a burning bush. Maybe you need to remember that God's name tells us that he's a God who speaks, that he's a God who calls, that he's a God who says, I am that the God's very name tells us that he is real, present, available, and caring. Maybe you've just been beat down by this life. It just feels so heavy, and you feel like he's absent. You feel like he's silent, and yet in that very moment, if you just seek him, you might realize there's a burning bush all around you because he's as close as your breath. And when I can find him there, I can find him anywhere. So what would it mean to find God where you are at? Or maybe God's name speaks to you about the fact that God wants to be known, that he is a God that desperately seeks relationship, that he is a God of good and reliable character. I don't know about you, I say this all the time, but I was given a view of God that just wasn't true, that he was hateful, that he was distant, that he was totally unreliable for someone like me. What would it mean for you to hear the name of God in the shattering of those lies? What would it mean to truly hear that God's very name tells us exactly who he says he is? Loving, compassionate, just, merciful, seeking relationship with you in every breath of your life. Do you need to remember that this God is as close as yo, hey, va? Finally, maybe you need to change the way you see God by really taking part in believing this idea that God is found in life and breath. Maybe there are just relationships. There are those people that I talked about. When they sit down in front of you, whether you mean to or not, they start becoming a little less human. What would it mean for you to believe deeply that they are not only image bearers of God, but that their very breath is God's name speaking to you. That God cares so deeply for that person that he identifies with their very breath. Or maybe you need yod Hey vad Hey to renew your sense of awe and wonder. Maybe you've just started to see the small moments of your life as stale and as boring and I have bad news. Every moment of your life is a small moment of your life. And if you miss enough of them, you're missing it. So what would it take for God's name to be your wake-up call? To realize that who this God is is a God who identifies in every moment of your life and if you just stop, and seek him, and listen, and look for the burning bush, you will find the God who created all things right there. And yo, hey, va hey. He got it. I love that. He picked up on the rhythm of it. That's good. So I want you to, what I'm going to ask you to do is I want you to sit with those questions. I want you to reflect on them. I want you to find him in this space during this next song. And as you sing the next song, remember that every word you say is a breath that reminds you of who he is—the God of existence, the God who is present, the God of goodness, Yahweh, the God who has a name—and it's Yo, Hey, Va, Hey. <laughs> Will you all pray with me? <laughs>